Father, we thank you for a wonderful and just glorious connection of worship this morning. Thank you for the connection of of hearts in this place. We thank you for the connection that's deepened with you. And I ask that you would continue to unfold that connection as we go on this morning. Holy Spirit, awaken us, awaken our, our minds, our hearts to receive from you. In Jesus' name. All right. Anybody remember what we talked about last week? It was a lot. Yeah. Acts 2, right? First 13 verses. We talked about filters uh, and how they're, how we've used them. Uh, We talked about uh, the mosaic that is constructed by God and how we're, we're, uncovering the tiles of that and seeing them come out and and starting to look at that bigger picture. And we looked at uh, uh, some of the obstacles in our way from transitioning from using filters to seeing the mosaic. You know, we talked about the the training we've had that says that history of Christianity is the the context that uh, we use to interpret the Bible. And, And we know that's not the case because the writers had a different view of what was going on. We also looked at the uh, another obstacle being the desensitizing uh, to the vitality of theological significance to the unseen world. We've taken that unseen world and kind of put it at arm's, arm's length. And that is not what the biblical writers had uh, going on. The other uh, obstacle we looked at from transitioning to using filters to seeing the mosaic is, is an assumption that there are Things in the Bible that are too odd or peripheral to matter. And if you just remember if it's weird or odd and you're reading that in the Bible and you think, oh, that's kind of weird. It's probably important. So pay attention to those things. We also talked about the divine council and we looked at different uses of Elohim. We did a breakdown of Psalm 82 and we talked about how we as Christians today, when we see the word God, we have a specific set of attributes that are assigned to that. And that's not what the biblical writers had in, in, in mind. That's why we went through Elohim and all the different uses of, of that uh, word that we have translated to God or gods. We talked about the different uh, viewpoints of why the world is the way it is. Genesis 3. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, Genesis 11, and and understanding that there's a, a lot of different rebellions, not just one that we can point to as to why the world the way is the way it is. And then we looked at the Table of Nations, Genesis 10, where all of the nations are laid out, and then looking on into Genesis 11, where there was that that last rebellion that we have where the nations were split up, split apart and uh, and we have a bunch of new languages. And so they were they were spread out over the earth. Then we looked at specifically Acts 2, first 13 verses. And, and one that I want to point out and pull out 
is verse 5. It says, now that we're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And now that it's important and it's significant to what was going on in Acts 2 because this is a reclaiming of the nations here. Right? We were starting to connect language uh, beyond Acts 2 to what was happening in the Old Testament. We looked at the, the words divided and bewildered or confused that connect us back to Genesis 11. So today we're moving on into the remainder of Acts 2, and uh, we're going to examine Peter's sermon and then the, the first of two mentions of Acts in Acts of having all things in common. What I want you to be able to walk away today with is, is a better understanding of the theological stance of Peter uh, in his sermon and how it pertains to us. There, there is a connection there with us today. And if we're going to fulfill the mission of making disciples of the nations, uh, that means we need to be able to effectively share the gospel of Jesus Christ with, with a deep knowledge and understanding, right? Knowledge here in the heart and understanding up here in the brain connecting both of those together. So that, that necessitates us looking at the deeper workings of what the apostles uh, are saying and doing throughout the book of Acts and, and really throughout Scripture as a whole. What, what's going on? Old Testament, New Testament. How's the New Testament using the Old Testament? We need to have a deeper understanding of these things. And, and remember to be mindful of, of filters and how they're steering you as well as the mosaic we're bringing into focus. And when you think about uncovering the mosaic, you can think about it as an archaeologist. They don't find one little thing and then are able to tell you all the things about this location, what was going on here. No, they take a bunch of, of things that they find, they piece those together, and it starts to tell a story. It, it begins to paint a picture. Same thing when we're talking about a mosaic. All right, turn to Acts 2. Are you already there? You're brilliant. Brilliant. I'm going to leave that thought here. All right, Acts 2, starting in verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. If you remember back to last week, at the end of, of them coming out, there was an accusation that they were drunk because they, they didn't understand what was going on. Verse 16 says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The, sh the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's addressing 
crowd in front of him. Uh, those mentioned back in verse 5, the devout Jews dwelling in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. That means there is representation from all of the nations where the, the people were scattered to back in Genesis 11. He is getting the attention here of God's family, right? The nation of Israel. First, because we know that uh, it's to the Jews first that the gospel would be preached. And we can look at uh, Romans 1.16. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We know that the Israelites were chosen by God. They are the nation of his inheritance in the Old Testament. We, we looked at this verse last week, Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. That is, Israel is his inheritance. Israel was the elect of God. They were the ones that were chosen. One of the things we have to understand is, is when we look at Israel being the elect of God, we can't put on a, a thinking hat that says, well, just because they're elect automatically means they're in heaven with him. Election and salvation are not synonyms here. They, they don't mean the same thing. Because if that were the case, we'd have a bunch of Baal worshipers in heaven. Because we know that the Israelites apostatized, which means they turned away from their faith in Yahweh, and they worshipped other gods. They got led into idolatry. But they were still the elect of God. I want to read verses 15 to 21 again. It says, For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The, sh the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's Joel, right? That's, that's Joel talking there. And we know that he was speaking to the Israelites, possibly all 12 tribes, but at least to Judah. And the, and the reason I say that is because the date of Joel is unknown, highly speculated, but unknown when it was written. It's, it's dated between the 9th and 5th century BC. That's a really big window. So we don't know if it was before the events of 722 BC where the Assyrians came in and just ravaged the northern kingdom of Israel. So he could be talking to, to everybody there. We don't know when it was spoken that, that he directed this. So why does this matter? Peter's use of Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, is describing fulfillment of prophecy there. Peter is plainly telling them God's spirit is here. What was promised in Joel is now here. That's why you're seeing what you're seeing and you're hearing what you're hearing. 
the people hearing in their own language uh, the telling of the mighty works uh, of God that's already happened. We talked about that last week. This is what happened when they spilled out of the upper room. That's what they started doing, proclaiming the mighty works of God. But they were uncomfortable. And, and due to that uncomfortable nature of this, uh, for some of the crowd, they decided to hurl accusations instead of, of sitting in what it was that God was doing and allowing that to, to penetrate into their heart, allowing knowledge to be formed. Turn to Jeremiah 31. Right after Isaiah, right before Lamentations. Jeremiah 31, we're going to start in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God made a new covenant with us. It was sealed in the blood of Jesus on the cross. We have to, to keep this, this piece of the mosaic in view at all times. There is a new covenant that was made with us. Now turn over to Ezekiel 36. Turn right. Ask Lamentations to Ezekiel. 36. And we're going to start in verse 22. Ezekiel 36, 22. We're going to read through verse 28. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. We're going to come back to some of this here in a little bit. We can see what is going to result here from the new covenant that God made with us. That new covenant that we talked about and read about in Jeremiah, we can see a lot of that here. 
the people listening to Peter would be making these connections. These are devout Jews. They would know the scriptures. They would know what was happening. They would be able to see it. Not only has God poured out his spirit on us, there are all of these other things we can expect too. God's bringing his family back together. This, this pouring out of the spirit of God is an empowerment to the Jews and ultimately to, to all of those who choose to believe, which is one of those things we were, we were just doing earlier during worship. We're empowered to do those things. We're empowered to pray over one another. We're empowered to declare and prophesy over one another. Those sharing the gospel here are, are speaking to the people in Acts 2 that are going to go back to the nations that they've been scattered to providentially and begin the regathering of the family of God. This is the, this is the providence of God, his, his timely preparation for future events. The people were scattered to all of the nations. He had his people infiltrating all of the nations. The, the necessary regathering, this, this is a necessary regathering that started uh, here in Acts 2 and, and was due again to what was recorded in Genesis 3, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and Genesis 11. Peter is, is connecting us here to the new covenant and giving language to this immediate audience that they would understand. They would be able to understand this, see these things, make these connections. What they were waiting for in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5, that we went through two weeks ago, is fulfilled in Acts 2. You can also find these things pointed to by Paul if you go and read 2 Corinthians 3. I, I recommend that. God is using the church to fulfill all of these things under the new covenant. We talked about this also in the foundation series. Ephesians 3.10 says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is using the church to fulfill all of these things in the new covenant. Okay, back to Acts 2. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What was done to Jesus wasn't a surprise to God. Plainly says, that God had a definite plan and foreknowledge of what was going to take place. There was going to be a need for a reclaiming of the family. I think the question comes up, if God knew this, why would he still choose to work with free will agents? Us, the ones who delivered him up. He still chooses to work with us. He still chooses us to to give us free will, to allow us to exercise that. Why would he do that? I mean, we know 
He desired to have a family. And if they screwed up, that was okay with him because he had that desire. He was going to stick with his original plan. He wasn't wrong in his creation. There was no, no admittance of that because it, it wasn't wrong. There was no need to, to scrap the plan and start over. He was going to have his family. I think we can we can understand it if we think about it like this. Us older kids here in the room, we have our own kids. If they were screwing up, causing problems, doing all sorts of bad things, there's there's a way you could solve that problem. You could kill them. I mean, that's going to solve the problem, right? You, you wouldn't have the same issues if that were the case. So you, you can see how, you can see how when you think about God not scrapping the plan, his original plan, he still, you know, he gave us free will. He's going to allow us to use that. He's not scrapping the plan. He's going to have his family. It wasn't a surprise to God, but it was, however, a surprise in the unseen realm because they didn't have access to the full mosaic. We know that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have killed Jesus. That wouldn't have happened. I want to I read something to you, and you can just follow along on the screen here. Luke 2, verses 8 to 14. It says, And in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What if this announcement of, of fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. What if this announcement was the first time the unseen realm knew the weight of what was happening. And that was the response. That was the response. That suddenly they appeared, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. They don't necessarily have the same picture that we think they do. So that, that's, that was, you know, a little side note there to say, what if? What if that was the first time that they had heard that? There was a definite plan, and, and God will not be persuaded to eliminate his family. Right, Acts 2, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Okay, what on earth is Peter saying here by quoting this psalm? This quote from Psalm 16. What's he pointing to? There, there is an argument about why Peter is using Psalm 16, 8 through 11 and, and to fill this need to explain Peter's use. There are some uh, commentators and theologians that will argue that David in this psalm is speaking as the Messiah. I, I'm not an educated scholar with you know an, an alphabet of degrees behind my name, but I would argue that David is not speaking of himself. He's not speaking as anyone here. Here's what appears to be clear to me here. Verse 8 is very clearly talking about Yahweh. The context of this psalm is a prayer to God for help. And let's just read the entire thing. Let's do that. Let's skip it. Psalm 16. Turn to there. You've got your Bibles. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and, and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Something else that, that isn't clear to everybody but, but needs to be is that when we understand Semitic culture, we understand that the helper is found at the right hand. Twice it's mentioned in there. Something else that's clear is, is David is confident God will not abandon his soul. These things express confidence either that, that God won't let him die. When we read this, you can see that. The one of two things is, is in view here. Confidence that God won't let him die or that God won't let him remain dead in Sheol. And Sheol just means either the grave or the realm of the dead. Something we got to understand when we think about the ancient Israelites, these people that lived back in the time of the Old Testament, it's not something that was in view that you won't die. They knew they were going to die. They, they very clearly knew that. They know that is going to happen. So David is putting his confidence in the fact that God will come in a way that he won't stay dead. Go back to Acts 2. 
verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witness. Peter goes from the obvious in verse 29 to laying out that David was talking about the Messiah when we read verses 30 to 32 there. Christ wasn't abandoned to Hades. His flesh didn't see corruption. And you can read that in Acts 2.31 and Psalm 16.10. There's also an allusion here to Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read those to you. Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12 says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. In verse 30, Peter is calling David a prophet. I, Before starting to look at that over the last week, I hadn't seen that. That was something I hadn't seen before, and I hadn't thought about um, David considered in this way. Um, I, I know I've heard it before, but hadn't really considered how deeply uh, that was that was going on there. You know, it, he's a psalmist, yes, but look at all the prophetic words coming out of his psalms. So if you hadn't noticed it before, it's all right. There is a reference I want I want us to look at though that that backs this up. Second Samuel. Chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Second Samuel 23, verses 1 and 2 says, Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. That's a pretty incredible declaration there. I think that very clearly shows that Peter's declaration of David as a prophet. It's backed up right there. In Psalm 16, 8 through 11, David was saying a prayer that someday this descendant he's talking about would pray. David isn't talking about himself. The Lord, who is at David's right hand in verse 8, is the Messiah. And that would mean that Peter thought and, and was telling everyone Jesus is the Messiah in the flesh. This is the, the deeper picture that he's painting for the people that are listening. Peter is, is reading the psalm as David is expressing hope that one day the Messiah will not let David stay in the realm of the dead. Peter's reading of, of this psalm, it's, it's theological. He's believing that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. That name, Emmanuel, God with us. This descendant of David, who is Yahweh incarnate, is who David is talking about in Psalm 16. David is prophetically looking forward 
to his deliverance from the realm of the dead. I think that's pretty incredible that David was able to see this. He was able to, to prophesy this. He knew that he would be in the presence of God. He wasn't going to stay there. So why are we going through all this? There needs to be a distinguishing of ideas when interpreting prophecy. And we, and we started to talk about this earlier in Sunday school. There is, is different types of interpretation, literal, symbolic, typological, allegorical. These are different interpretations. And what we just walked through is not a, not a literal interpretation. Otherwise, David would have been talking about himself. And, and as I said, I don't believe that was the case, although you know, I don't have all the letters and degrees behind my name. But this is what I see. So what Peter walked through is theological, but that doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't mean that. And other than literal reading of Scripture doesn't mean you're saying that what I'm reading isn't real. Symbolic, typological, allegorical interpretations of prophecy are just as real as literal interpretations. And we can't get stuck on literal literalism because... There is a, a certain amount of, of stretch or elasticity of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. So I just want us to keep that in mind. Back to Acts. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So 34 and 35, that's, that's a citation of Psalm 110 verse 1. So the events here, presume the presence of all the tribes in the audience. There's, there's that presumption there. Again, we have to presume that there is representation there. Because in verse 33, the, there's the, these promises are being fulfilled immediately, right then. In verse 36, let all the house of Israel, uh, this is the reclaiming of the nations. It's begun, right? But the, the fulfillment is still out there because we're awaiting the second coming of Christ. There's still the ultimate fulfillment. One of the things I like to, to look at when, when I'm reading Psalm 110, 110, especially verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, um, to put this into a little bit different light and, and way to read this, you could just say, Yahweh said to Messiah. So just something to, to think about there. All right, back in Acts 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are, who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How many times have you heard, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? There's a little bit of controversy in, in verse 28 here. And I just want to point it out and kind of walk through this, and there's a reason why. How does baptism fit into all of this if, if simply believing by faith is what brings us into the family? There's a command given here by Peter, repent and be baptized. And the, the result is the gift of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness. That's the way we can read this in our English translation. A couple of things to look at that may help bring some of the mosaic here into view. John's water baptism of repentance and embracing the kingdom, it's is a key element because Peter wants him to believe Jesus is both Lord and Christ, the king of this kingdom that has come. If you remember back to Jesus' baptism, there is the descending of the Holy Spirit like a dove. The connection that is that Holy Spirit is received when people repent when, or, or turn and believe. Acts 1.5, for, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John's water baptism is, is superseded in some sense by the baptism described in Acts 1.5. Also, the coming of Holy Spirit at Pentecost is on those who already believe. Those 120 in the upper room were already believers. They didn't have to be convinced, which means Holy Spirit has, a, has connection to the state of belief. The new covenant promise of Holy Spirit comes with a new heart. The indwelling of Holy Spirit brings a new heart for us. The promise of Holy Spirit comes with, with references of being sprinkled with water that pictured forgiveness in tandem with a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So this goes back to looking at literal or other than literal interpretation. Water is, is physical and uncleanness in Ezekiel 36 was spiritual or of the heart. If you remember back to when we discussed priestly anointing as part of the foundation series, priests would wash to symbolize spiritual cleanness. It was a ritual to prepare for entry into sacred space. So Acts 2.38 isn't just about water baptism or spiritual baptism alone. There is an element of both there. Repentance preceded baptism of water and spirit. So without getting into all of the Greek grammar stuff, because it was far too complicated to try to break down, the phrase in verse 38, for the forgiveness of your sins, could be looked at as baptism having something to do with forgiveness. 
And we know that's not the case. We can't leave faith out. There is repentance and belief taking place through faith because like Peter's audience, we didn't witness what the apostles did. We didn't have the firsthand access like they did. We also don't want to get the idea that this is in some way ordered. You know, there's belief and repentance. Then there's water baptism. Then there's baptism of the Holy Spirit or receiving the Holy Spirit. We can't look at it in that way, right? If we jump ahead to what's coming in Acts 11, Cornelius, he believed, was baptized with the Holy Spirit, then water baptized. So that kind of throws a wrench into that if we think about that as some kind of progression. And I know you have the same experience. There was uh, Holy Spirit baptism before water baptism. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to count the sprinkling as an infant because uh, there's no choice in that. So I, I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's a matter for another day. So back to Acts 2.38. Repentance results in Holy Spirit baptism. Them being water baptized illustrates that you are now clean. You've been forgiven. We start to think about it like the priestly anointing and what they did. So I know this is a lot to digest, but we need to recognize some of these things uh, that people will point to as the Bible contradicting itself because of a literal stance. We need to be able to, to look at these things and understand what's going on, the big picture, starting to get deep into what is happening here, what's being said, and not stick to something literal. Acts 2.39 says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is a restating of who this message is for and a foreshadowing of those in the other nations being brought into the family. And, and we know it says Peter went on with with exhortations and witness that we don't have recorded. We don't have those exact words recorded, but it's likely what is recorded, the words that we do have written down here, was the brunt of the argument uh, that convinced about 3,000 souls to be added to the family that day. Going on, the chapter comes to a somewhat even more dramatic conclusion uh, if we try to overlay what follows onto our human systems, and, and those aren't even close to perfect. Acts 2. Let's go to verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, again, it's going to be a repeat for some of you. But this is not advocating for any type of system of earthly government. You know, a lot of people will point to this and say, oh, socialism or communism, that's where it's at. 
This is what the Bible teaches. There's no state authority in here telling the believers that they had to do this. There's no compulsion here. It was completely voluntary. All things in common mentioned twice uh, in Acts, here and again in chapter 4. But we have to look at there was something unique happening in Jerusalem that the believers were responding to. And, and I don't want this to give us a bad sense of possessions, uh, of building wealth, and not talking materialistic hoarding or prosperity gospel, which I have issues with that term, but anyways. The, this, this model that they were using here, uh, it's not handed down to any of the churches that are planted uh, throughout the missionary journeys that we have recorded. There, there was never... Uh, 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 anything that says, hey, you're going to do this exactly the same. We know that this didn't raise their economic status in any way. This having all things in common, selling their belongings, selling their property, sharing that, that with everyone. It didn't change anything. It just allowed them to get through. They were still poor. Paul took up offerings. He sent it back to Jerusalem. But the joy of the Jerusalem church was in their oneness. Taking care of each other brought about great joy with these people. Their goal wasn't to do all this to become rich, to set up some utopian society where everybody shared everything. Their goal was unity or community or in unedited life talk, oneness. The kingdom of God is not of this world. We can't forget that. We cannot forget that it's not. It's higher than our political systems. The Bible, again, it doesn't condemn or forbid private property or generating wealth. We all share image or status, but we don't share abilities or interests. Not everybody has the same abilities. Not everybody has the same interests. But we should be using our abilities and interests in a way that we can share all things in common with other believers and really take care of one another. I, I think there are some things that we can grab hold of, of what is being said here. And, and the first one of those is that believers are taking care of believers. What if the church wasn't a time or place? I know we talk about this. But what if we start to, to share that idea with other people? What if it was the believing community reaching out to help one another? Anytime. The second thing is it's poor theology to say the, the state or government should be taking care of people in our churches. Yeah, it's nice to hear that socialism and communism aren't biblical, but neither is letting the government do what the church is supposed to be doing. The third thing is, is the picture is of people that were aware of the needs of others and there was no shame. The situation of the new church located in Jerusalem was one that was up against persecution. They were up against great persecution from the Sanhedrin, from the Romans. Everywhere they turned, there was persecution coming out. So shouldn't it be easier to help when persecution isn't present? 
fourth thing you could you could look at having all things in common as sort of an Edenic model, like Eden. Right? The church ought to be like a family. When when God placed Adam and Eve into the garden, they were supposed to spread across the whole earth. They were supposed to be fruitful, multiply, make the rest of the earth like Eden. They had the dominion to go do that. So the church ought to be like a family, just like that, where, where no one is in want for genuine needs. Not thinking about luxury items, but genuine needs. And, and even going beyond that, again, thinking about your creativity of what is a genuine need. We know there is genuine needs to provide. Again, you know, business owners, give people jobs. You can loan clothing to somebody. Do that so they can get a job. If you have expertise, train people. Pass on your skills. Be creative in having all things in common. Don't get stuck on property. Don't get stuck on money. There are, are far too many things that we could point to to say, these are the things that we have that we can share with one another. So why would it be a bad thing if, if we were known as the church that helps people? It wouldn't be, right? That's what we want to be known for. I think we all share that same, same DNA there. So I said toward the beginning of this, I, I want you to be able to walk away today with a better understanding of the theological stance of Peter and his sermon and how that pertains to us. It pertains because we are believing in the very God who made us, the very God who came as one of us to save us from sin and its result, death, and then putting his spirit and a new heart in us when we choose to believe. It pertains to us because we need to be able to see the mosaic for what it is, grab hold of our place in the family and in the larger plan that God is working out. We know he has a plan, a definite plan. That's what it says, right? So if we're going to fulfill the mission of making disciples of the nation, that means we need to be able to effectively share the gospel of Jesus Christ with deep knowledge and understanding. That necessitates, again, us looking at the deeper workings of what's going on in Scripture. Right now, Acts, that's what we're going through, right? So there is a necessity to get into Acts, understand what it is the apostles are doing, what it is they're saying, what's going on in the bigger picture, what are they connecting us to? It also necessitates us pushing deeper into the intimate relationship with Jesus that is available to us. It's available, but you got to put that all-access pass on and use it. It also necessitates that we bring the fullness of ourselves into oneness for the betterment of all. The fullness of what it is that you carry, of the gifts that he's placed in you, that is sharing all things in common. There's a necessity there to show up. Again, in all of that, we need to be mindful of filters and how they steer us. 
And we also need to be mindful of the mosaic we're bringing into focus. So I know that's a lot of ground to cover in one sitting. Uh, and maybe we could have broken it up. But, you know, Acts 2 is a, a full chapter with a, a lot taking place in terms of, of cosmic geography and the laying out of, of theological understandings that allow us to be better at, at fulfilling the mission of making disciples of the nations. So this week, I would, I would encourage you to take some time to, to read through this chapter again and, and recognize where your, your knowledge and understanding have opened up. Take a look at it. And then record these things and, and celebrate what it is that you're seeing. Celebrate the elimination of filters, or at least celebrate that you recognize there are filters there. Even if you haven't gotten rid of them yet. Also celebrate new perspectives that you gain. Those new perspectives of the mosaic that have been put together by God. Be sure to look at that. Be sure to celebrate. Don't let it go. Share with us what it is that God is revealing to you. I think that's it for me too. You can pray us out, please. Why don't you guys stand? I know you're all comfy cozy, but you could fall asleep if I pray. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm feeling a nap too. Father. We just thank you for revelation. We thank you for knowledge. And we thank you for understanding. And we're glad to have our whole world blown up right now. To have greater vision of who you are. To hold you in a loftier position. Thank you for increasing our ability to make much of who you are. We love you. Amen. So if there's anybody in the room that has never, ever given their life fully to God, now is your opportunity. If you're someone who has really counted the cost and agreed that you want to lay your life down as a sacrifice before Jesus and pick up a cross and follow after him, now is your moment. You may be in the room and you may not be. But I want to pray for you. Father, I just thank you for the one, the one that is hungering, thirsting for righteousness. The one who's desperate to know you. The one who's ready to make a lifelong decision to give up their life for you. The one who's counted the cost and is ready to say yes. God, I thank you for the harvest. Thank you for the harvest in Junction City, and I thank you for the harvest in Kansas. And I thank you for the ability to steward that wealth. 
We bless your name. Amen.